This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Let's have all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG 13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode, sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and mini-series. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Steph asks Nate some questions about Let It Roll in our farewell episode. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and that might be the last time I say this for a while. We're going to take a hiatus from the show. I'm pretty burned out and uh, have a lot of obligations at my day job. And so um, Steph's going to ask me some questions to kind of wrap up the series at least for now and uh that's that's what this episode is going to be so nate this has been a massive project for you i it's spanned more than six years we have been doing this for a long time now what was the original goal of let it roll and how did it change over the course of this long run well, the original goal of Let It Roll was kind of to give Ed Ward a boost on his um, history of rock and roll and to give me a chance to do podcasting that wasn't about mixed martial arts or cage fighting. And I got pretty comfortable with that and I enjoyed it. And so we kept doing it even after Ed passed. How was it for you when Ed passed? Because you guys podcasted closely together for two years I mean, it was sad, um, but it was also one of those situations where 
I was glad that Ed was past his worries. Um, you know, he was somebody who'd kind of found himself in a hard spot late in life um, financially and didn't have a lot of, you know, didn't have a, a spouse or kids or anybody uh, to help him out. And, you know, times are hard and it had been very hard. Uh, I didn't know Ed well, um, but I'd been acquainted with him since like 2003 and, and I knew he had been struggling that whole time. And so, you know, it was just kind of hard to watch somebody that I admired so much for his writing and knowledge of musical history kind of being tossed aside by the system. I mean, you know, he was his own worst enemies and, and constantly did things that self-sabotaged himself, like uh, quitting uh, Fresh Air hmm. on NPR because they wouldn't give him a whole episode about his book, but they were giving him a plug on every episode. So, you know, that kind of stuff, you would just kind of like smack your head and be like, Ed, why did you do that? Um, you know, so so it was it was mixed feelings. I was glad that his worries were over. He'd had you know, lots of drama. He'd had a flood in his house. It destroyed a lot of his things. Um, Ed was a character and uh, uh, maybe a uh, warning to people who pursue their passions um, over, you know, more traditional responsibilities. I think, I think Ed probably could have used a steady day job um, at some point in his life. And, um, you know, I, I mean, from what I can tell, he was a big part of the beginning of South by Southwest, and it's very typical that he ended up with nothing out of that, and other people got rich. Uh, <laughs> it's just, just kind of Edward's lot in life. But I really, you know, loved his writing. I was a big fan of his piece of the history of rock and roll and the the Rolling Stone history of rock and roll that came out in the '80s, and he wrote a third of that, the part that covered, you know, uh, basically the 1900 to 1960. Uh, portion of it and I, I still think for that era of of musical history he's got few rivals uh, he really had a handle on 50s r&b and rock and country and folk that few people had and an ability to weave stories together you know he could take he could go through a big pile of old billboard and cash box magazines and and weave it into a pretty seamless narrative. I think he was a gifted writer and um, definitely enjoyed learning from him and talking to him about music. It was, that uh, was really fun. And, um, and then, you know, from there, the series kind of evolved into, it was fun. So I wanted to keep doing it. And I also wanted to learn more about the, the history of music. I mean, I went into this thinking, oh, I know all about this stuff, and then very quickly realized, wow, I didn't know anything about this stuff. And Ed's methodology, I thought was really good, that his focus on, you know, what were the audiences paying attention to? What was the social context? What was the economic context? Uh, who were the non-musical players in this, the managers, the publishers, the record label owners, who you know, frequently had his bigger, bigger part to play in this than the musicians. I mean, somebody like Sam Phillips, he, you know, you, you listen to his uh, collected works, the way Peter Goralnik selected him, and you can hear, you know, even when he's working with people like Howlin' Wolf and B.B. King and Elvis Presley and Jerry Lee Lewis, you can hear Sam Phillips imposing himself on those people. And, and you know, even B.B. King comes out and does a rock and roll song when he's working with Sam Phillips. And it, it, there was definitely a sound that, that Phillips was after and a feel Phillips was after, and he was able to 
recreate it over and over again. And there were just some things that I felt like I disagreed with Ed about, but I didn't know enough to argue my case. And then that, you know, spurred me to to study it more. And so at this point, I think it's really a wild revision of history and a mistelling of history to say that, you know, rock and roll comes from blues and country. I think those were influences on rock and roll, but it's pretty clear the main through line was from pop music and swing. And, you know, that somebody like uh, Louis Jordan, uh, you know, is the acknowledged father of R&B and, and grandfather of rock and roll. And he comes straight out of his swing band with Chick Webb. You know, he's in a band with Ella Fitzgerald and Chick Webb in the 30s. And to me, it's just clear as day that Jump Blues comes from swing. Swing comes from New Orleans jazz. Uh, and New Orleans jazz comes from, you know, black folks getting a hold of marching band instruments and hearing the blues and also hearing lots of minstrelsy and vaudeville stuff and and marching band songs and putting it all together into this new thing um that they called jazz in the 20s that you know we now kind of call blues or classic blues and jazz um anyway so so that's kind of how it how it metastasized out of control and i have a habit of starting projects i can't finish i mean i knew there was no way i would ever pull off everything i was trying to do but we pulled off a fair bit of it um and and i'm pretty proud of what we've done you have an incredible library. Now, part of that library are the, these collections of episodes with people you, you've made into series. I think those are probably my favorite. Like, personally, I love the techno series with Ryan Harkness. I think that was just leagues beyond anything I've ever heard in any music podcast. Nobody ever really covers techno. So that was pretty cool to get not one, not two, but three big seasons of techno. Um, what was your favorite and what spurred you on to start these little these little segmented chunks? Well, you know, since Ed gave me two seasons of A History of Rock and Roll, it was kind of a logical thing to look at other genres and try to tell those stories in, in series. And I think the techno one was probably my favorite um, just because I learned so much. I knew nothing about DJ based music. I, I knew, I knew a little bit about disco, but I didn't understand it at all. I was trying to understand it as if it was rock records. I was trying to, you know, buy an OJ's album and listen to the album and didn't realize that that's not how that music was heard, that that music came to life in discos when DJs played, you know, the singles and, and, blended the songs and stretched out the the dance beats and and you know turned a three minute song into a 12 minute dance odyssey and then segued seamlessly into the next song expanded that one out and you know once i read uh you know the the books that we use for the sources of techno role you know particularly last night a dj saved my life that really helped me understand it and it was really exciting and fun to kind of skim through the surface of of this genre that I had more familiarity with than I realized. I mean, you know, when I was in high school, I was at the big club in Dallas. It was one of the first places to play uh, techno outside of Detroit and Chicago. And, you know, they were giving away free MDMA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was quite an experience. And then, and, you know, I'd been to some raves in the nineties and, 
been you know knew a lot of people that were heavily into dance music and had heard them playing it although i never i i couldn't get a handle on it it wasn't written about in the magazines that i read and and I didn't understand how it was made or, or really how to appreciate it other than, you know, if I was going out to go dancing and the only reason I would ever go dancing was if I was looking for girls or drugs. And, you know, so, um, I wasn't paying a lot of attention to the music. I certainly wasn't bugging the DJ to ask what records they were playing or how do you do this? And so learning all that stuff and especially, you know, from Ryan's firsthand experience as a DJ and he's just great fun, uh, to work with. And, and, you know, um, I think Simon Reynolds book that we did the second series on, you know, really taught me a lot about the evolution of the different post acid house styles in England and the, the road to jungle. Um, but, you know, it was just interesting. That was that was probably my favorite one, and, and the one that I'm, I'm sort of the most disappointed with was the Latin Roll series. I wish um, we could have gotten more of Ned Sublet's time because his work is just so monumental, and I really think that Latin music is a big part of the iceberg that's under the surface of American musical history, and it, it, it's kind of written out of of the history, but it's a huge, huge part, and it's really a direct pipeline to you know sub-Saharan Africa and and the rhythmic mastery that um, the African traditions put together, which is just amazing. The things they were doing with beats uh, in the Congo, right around the same time Bach was tempering the clavier in Europe, you know, that they were advancing the science of rhythm just as much as Bach was advancing the science of harmony uh, around the same time and, and probably well before Bach. And it's just, you know, the whole history is really fascinating. I wish I'd been able to tell it more and better. That's something I might come back and try again to finish. There was another series that I liked a whole heck of a lot, and that was the gospel series. And I think you guys did a really good job. I loved the parts when they would talk about how, I, I believe it was Mahalia would like show show a little tiny bit of ankle. I, I love that. <laughs> you know, it was fantastic stuff. There's <laughs> actually plenty of documentation. And, and, you know, had I not been laid off early last year, you know, we had a pretty clear plan uh, to carry it through kind of the end of the golden age of gospel. Um, yeah, but it was amazing. It was it was uh, fun to learn about and understand and, and kind of put it in the context of the various um, black denominations and the way that the Baptists were competing with the Pentecostals and, and you know, were willing to take somebody like Thomas A. Dorsey, who was coming from a straight blues jazz background. I mean, he's the father of hokum, which is a subgenre of, of blues and, and, you know, wrote some incredibly dirty songs before uh, he came back to the Lord and, and, you know, stuck it out with church music the rest of his life. But, you know, it was just fascinating to learn about that and the way that some of the performers like Rosetta Tharp were coming straight out of the Pentecostal tradition and others, you know, like Mahalia Jackson were coming from a Baptist tradition, but informed by Pentecostalism. And and really, um, you know, when we interviewed R.J. Smith um, about his music, brilliant musical history of Los Angeles in the 40s, 30s, 40s, 50s on Central Avenue, his description of the first Pentecostal meetings in 1908. I mean, to me, that's where the rock and roll spirit really starts. And, and this was a, and it's just fascinating to learn about that stuff. And, and the way that, that, that energy exploded out at the same time as, you know, the black middle class was trying to make their church music 
more palatable to white people like they were sort of seeking approval and and smoothing it off and and taking it further and further away from the the original uh spirituals in the fields and and you know kind of the secret uh african-american culture of this of the enslaved peoples and and the pentecostal energy just explodes out in this other place you know and 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 brought that spirit of revival back and and then and to me without that infusion of passion and power that the Pentecostals brought, you wouldn't have Martin Luther King. I mean, you know, somebody like C.L. Franklin, Aretha Franklin's father, who is one of King's biggest allies and, you know, probably the most important black preacher in Detroit in the sixties that they drew so much from gospel music and, and also the dignity of their, of their ancestors who had been trying to, civilize or culture vi or whatever you know they were trying to make gospel music kind of highfalutin or it wasn't even gospel it was you know sacred songs and that combination i think gave somebody like mlk so much of his power and and you know the the tight correlations between the civil rights movement and and the birth of soul music um it's just an incredible story and to me you know that's that's the real power of music. I mean, I, I don't think Tommy Dorsey, Thomas Dorsey and, and Mahalia Jackson had any idea what they were lighting the fuse on, but, you know, I'm glad they got to live to see um, some of the successes of the civil rights movement in the sixties. And I hope that they, I'm sure they knew that their music had played a big part in making that happen. Do you have an episode that you feel stands head and shoulders above all the rest? Maybe this is the episode that you say, Hey, come and check out my show and start here. I think the interview I got to do with Mark Lewison um, about the Beatles, um, in particular, how the Beatles got signed uh, to EMI was the one I'm most proud of. I mean, he's probably the music researcher I admire the most. His work uh, on the Beatles is just incredible. Um, I kind of wonder if he's not waiting to see if Yoko Ono and Paul McCartney pass away sometime soon <laughs> so he can write more about them. Um, but that's just uh, speculation. But I know that he's no longer, you know, officially blessed by the Beatles or doesn't have the access he used to. And so it, it's curious because the he's such a scrupulous and honest chronicler. And, you know, other writers like Bob Spitz, who did a biography of the Beatles, you know, he he – said in his notes that he had heard a lot of stories about like their sex lives with fans and things like that. And that he made a deliberate choice not to get into that kind of stuff and, you know, destroyed his notes and, and everything. And Lewison is just such a stickler for the truth that I don't think he has the, he just would refuse to do that. And so I can imagine that, you know, the, 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 the first book ended on January 31st or December 31st, 1962. And so the next installment is supposed to cover 63 to 66. And, you know, the Beatles were indulging in, you know, the things that came with fame and money of an unprecedented and, and really never matched again level of fame and in a period of real sexual openness and 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 changing so you know i just feel like lewis and might have some stories in there that yoko and paul mccartney don't necessarily want to get out and also you know he's 
such a meticulous researcher and he proved in in the first book that you know George George Martin didn't decide to sign the Beatles on his own that he was forced to in large part because he'd been having an affair with his secretary at EMI and, and they didn't approve of that kind of thing and and they you know held that over his head and and the publishing arm of EMI wanted to sign the Beatles and and publish their music and and you know so it was it was very fun to get Lewis and to tell that specific story, which is one of like I think two or three things that I thought were the biggest revelations uh, that he proved conclusively just through doggedly going through so much paperwork at the record company and memos and interviews with with surviving people and you know and he'd been working on it since the eighties so he'd interviewed a lot of people that have passed uh, now. So anyway, yeah, that would be um, my favorite episode. But there's a lot I'm proud of. I had a a lot of fun doing the series. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store or I could make one of my new factor meals. (laughs) Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell ya, I have small ear canals, Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, (laughs) oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order 
plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Mine is the Rick James episode, I think. I really enjoyed the stuff you did with Brooks Long, and the the episode y'all did on the Rick James was pretty awesome. I love that one. Well, yeah, I loved working with Brooks and, and learning from Brooks and, and getting to talk. You know, that when I discovered David Ritz and realized how many biographies he'd ghostwritten and how many books he'd written, you know, and then you know, David Ritz is in his 80s and he's busy and has new books he wants to talk about. And, and you know, so finding Brooks Long, who was willing to dive into that body of work. And I'm really proud of uh, our, you know, it's basically another series, the David Ritz Library. I mean, David Ritz's contribution to the historiography of R&B and soul music is pretty peerless. And, you know, I got to speak to David Ritz once and that was that was fascinating and getting insights into into what the music had meant for him personally and how it had led him to convert to Christianity, you know, and in the end, you know, it was a, a true spiritual journey led by the music. But yeah, he just he uh helped so many people tell their stories and you know, I'm really proud of what we got down and, and hopefully um you know would love to come back and make some more uh podcasts with Brooks because um, there's still more David Ritz <laughs> books we haven't covered. But yeah, the Rick James story was really fascinating, and, and I enjoyed learning about him a lot um, and talking about him. I think people knew how old he was when he became famous, as opposed to how far back he got started. I had no idea. Yeah, I, I didn't know any of that either, and ex- it explains so much. You know, I, I'd always kind of looked at Rick James as kind of uh, – he just burst on the scene, it seemed like, when Super Freak came out. But he'd been around for like 20 years before that. Yeah, and, he, and he'd and he he been big on the R&B charts for five mm-hmm. or six years before Super Freak came out. Um, yeah, and it, it, it just explains so much. I mean, I didn't understand when I was younger why he had faded so hard in the 80s. I just assumed that he had really just gone off the deep end with drugs. But now that I understand that, you know, I mean, very few artists – continue to do pioneering work into their thirties and forties, especially after they get rich and famous. And the fact that he had already been through so many identities, you know, doing folk rock, mm. uh, I mean, being in a band with Neil Young, that was not that something... right there was what got me. I mean, so yeah. many twists and turns in his career that I never knew anything about. Yeah. And, and, you know, his autobiography is just full of these adventures and misadventures and, and, you know, uh, lots of lots of trouble with the law from the day he was born, uh, pretty much. And, and yeah, it was it was it was fascinating to learn about that. And that, you know, he'd been through a folk rock phase and an R&B phase and a, a fusion rock phase, jazz fusion rock phase, and and you know, finally found the right 
mix in the late 70s and just yeah for a few years there he was the king of funk but then prince came along and <laughs> pushed him to the side <laughs> what's your take on the direction of music journalism because right now we're seeing journalism take some weird turns in general with all media whether it be news media or pop culture or music i saw last week i can't remember the name, the name of the outlet but it's pretty pretty popular pitchfork. what was pitchfork that's right yeah closed yeah. down i mean you talked about ed you know not being able to f sort of keep a foothold you yourself me you know bloody elbow we we all have experienced this so What's your take on the direction of music journalism, especially with AI and, and Google and social media pretty much uh, cannibalizing everything? I mean, I wish I knew because uh, then I might be able to navigate it better. Um, but it's multiple cycles that are that are kind of coming to ends at the same time. I think that all of Western culture to a certain extent is exhausted. I think, you know, European culture lost global dominance in world war one. I. I mean, you can just see it in the music before world war one started people in America and all over the world looked to Europe for their kind of cultural points. You know, what, what are they doing in Europe? What, what are the, who's the hot composer? What kind of operas are they, you know, what's, what's the big new opera in Italy? You know, what, what's the big symphony coming out of Germany, you know, and, um, World War One happens, and by the end of World War One, suddenly it's it's jazz and blues, and and African Americans are just taking over the world, you know, and and America has suddenly the actions happening in America, and Europe gets to stand back and watch, um, and I think that that has definitely come to an end. Um, I think what we're seeing, you know, geopolitically is this inexorable decline of the power of the West and the United States. And we're seeing Hollywood run itself into the ground. I mean, the, these, the neoliberal business practices and this ethos of strip mining everything for all the wealth that you can get out of something, you know, and then funnel that up to the, to the handful of people at the very, very top. Um, that's just not a good way to run a culture and people who are, who excel at grabbing power and putting themselves in, in places where they have a monopoly control on a market and just extract a rent. Those people are not going to be good at, say, running a movie studio or a record label. I, I didn't get to do episodes on you know what happened to the record industry in the 90s and 2000s and why the internet disrupted it so much and and how fat and sassy they had gotten in the nineties and, and corrupt, but there's such a difference between the music executives in the nineties and two thousands and the, and the music executives that made the great music. I mean, the, the, the cultural explosions happened in America when a lot of small entrepreneurs had a shot when somebody like Sam Phillips with no capital, no connections could, revolutionized the music world you know by discovering elvis presley and and the business forces aligned against that and made it harder and harder to happen i mean in the 60s you know bands like the kingsman could 
record a, a, a record in the local studio in Seattle, print it up, get it played on the radio, and it could become a national hit. And that didn't happen anymore by the 70s. And you know, then in the 90s, they passed the Communications uh, Digital Millennium Copyright Act and, and the communication, the 96 Communications Bill and just allow the monopolization of radio stations across the country and, and, and let you know, fewer and fewer record companies have more and more power. And then, you know, one story that I would love to have told, but I couldn't get anybody to come on the show and talk about it was the um, massive fires at Universal Music Studio that the New York Times reported on. And there were a number of lawsuits by artists against Universal and the courts ruled against the artists in every case. And, and you know, the people who put that story out um, got legal advice discouraging them from talking about it publicly. And, you know, it's a situation where a, a, a warehouse on the Universal Studios lot burned up and may have taken 500,000 priceless original recordings and destroyed them. And, and I mean, and this is, you know, this is the louvre of American music. This, this is, this was, you know, the work of Bing Crosby and Chuck Berry and the chess record label and, you know, the, the Decca record label and, and, you know, Billie Holiday and all the way up to uh, Geffen and, and, you know, in the nineties and Nirvana and Soundgarden and whole, I mean, just all this classic American music just poof, burned up and destroyed, lost. There was tons of unreleased stuff that, that, had historical value and and to me you know our copyright laws got so distorted in the 60s so that a couple of big companies could hold on to assets like mickey mouse or superman as long as possible but meanwhile thousands of books were were lost because they should have gone into the public domain where they could have been archived and, and, you know, the scholars and people who care about that stuff could go through and say, Oh, this book, this book needs more attention. This book, you know, throw these away, but let's keep these. That didn't get to happen to American creative productions from 1923 on. I mean, they, they just kept pushing the date back and back and the net outcome of these monopolies was that one company owned so many master tapes and had no interest in taking proper care of them. And when that story came out, one of the other major labels basically fired all their music archivists because they were afraid they would talk about how poorly, you know, how little resources there were given to storing this stuff. And it's, it's as somebody who cares about history and, and American music, it's just devastating to me. I mean, it's, it's as if somebody set fire to the, you know, National Gallery and lost all those paintings. I mean, that stuff we don't get back. You know, we're there's not any more Bing Crosby's. There's not another Billie Holiday. We we don't get another Chuck Berry or Buddy Holly. And and those master tapes had sound quality that is still better than the reproduction. I mean, you know, as if you believe in progress, if uh, this technology gets better, there was more data on those master tapes than, than has ever been heard or, or you know, and, and, and it's just uh, unfathomable to me um, that that was lost. And I, I feel like that's what's killed music journalism. It's what killed has killed the record industry is just these, the whole game is for big players to put themselves in control of a market and then 
quote unquote extract value as one of my least favorite Hollywood executives says, um, you know, they just strip mine things. And sometimes they take a perfectly good business, like what they did to Toys R Us, where they, you know, um, where they take a perfectly good business that could be profitable with the legacy and history and all these stakeholders. But the only stakeholders that officially matter are shareholders. So employees don't care, don't count, customers don't count. You know, people had their whole lives and careers wrapped up in Toys R Us and they just burned it up so people like Mitt Romney can extract cash from it for a few years. It's, it's, uh, it's tragic. Yeah, it's tragic, and yeah. and it's it's going to come a cropper. I mean, these idiots that run our society are running the thing into the ground, and these wars we're we're seeing now, um, I think, are a function of of this neoliberal cabal that's been in control of the United States since Reagan, refusing to let go of power, refusing to adapt to change, and I'm afraid that other powers are going to force us to change um and you know we're heading into times when there's going to be a lot worse things to worry about than music history (laughs) i'm afraid what's your take on the virtual tour experience because this has been something that's really blown up in the last two years um and it's been big around two particular stars beyonce and taylor swift do you think we're going to see more of this or are they special and only they probably have the powers to do that i don't know i mean i don't know that um the music industry can create another beyonce or taylor swift at this point in time you know i mean beyonce's been around uh since the late 90s and there was a much bigger megaphone for for mainstream media at that point than there is now i mean now it's this tower of babel and and i don't know if if you know i don't know if somebody like olivia rodrigo is ever going to be as big as taylor swift or beyonce Mm -hmm. um and i don't know that you can make another one so i I really don't know and those ticket prices are just out of my reach so (laughs) i haven't haven't you know my daughter would like to go to olivia rodrigo and I'm just not paying $600 for two tickets to a show like that. It's ridiculous. You but know? now they have the virtual tour where you can go to, you can pay like a certain amount and go and, and see it in a theater. Online. Well, I mean, you can see it also online or you can like a couple of them. Like I know Taylor Swift had theaters that were running the, the show. So, I mean, um, I just think that's, Wow. You know, in the last two, and we've just seen that in the last two years, that's pretty enormous. Yeah. I mean, that does kind of democratize it and bring it to more people. I don't know. I haven't seen, I haven't seen the virtual show, so I don't know. Me Um, either. (laughs) I just noticed that it got real big recently because of Taylor Swift's tour, her Eros tour just wrapped. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting that Taylor Swift is so big now because she's really kind of at the, Indish part of her career. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's already re-recorded all of her, you know, early body of work, which I'm always skeptical of stuff like that. Then you're never going to catch the magic again. And, and you know, so I don't think that it's not like she's a new star and has another 20 years in her. I, I, I think maybe she's got another 10, 15 years um, before she turns into Madonna or whatever. But I don't know. I don't know. It's future's not mine to see. Or and it's it's the kids that are growing up on this music that are going to decide, you know, what the verdict is. But I I assume they'll do more and more of that stuff. But, but, you know, with AI, um, 
I really think we could be descending into a Tower of Babel kind of situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so easy to make, you know, Taylor Swift is currently suing a bunch of people for putting out se- sexually explicit AI creations that use her image and likeness, you know, in ways that, that she finds deeply offensive. And I would too, <laughs> um, you know, and, and so it's just really going to be a hall of mirrors uh, in the future, trying to separate, you know, what, what, what did humans actually create here? And is what we really need mountains, more content, you know, right. I mean, there's already too many people trying to, create content and there's very few gatekeepers or very few people saying this is the stuff you know that, that needs to be brought to a bigger audience or this is the stuff that matters or is important and you know gatekeepers aren't perfect um and it was exciting to kind of push them aside but they've come back in other ways i mean after the trump election the way uh legacy media use that and the government use that to arm twist the the big tech monopolies such such that you know independent media got pushed aside and and downgraded and and you know (laughs) after the cable news networks and the new york times led us into the iraq war suddenly disinformation is a big problem and the cure for it is the new york times and cnn like (laughs) give me a break you know and um that was really disheartening and kind of when i gave up hope uh, that the internet would be a positive change. And now it's clearly this AI thing is extremely icky and I don't like where it's headed at all. Although I do look forward to young, poor musicians somewhere getting a hold of AI tools and making some really crazy, sick music. I mean, uh, like the episodes we did with Kit McIntosh, where he kind of caught us up with, with some of the things that the young creators in Jamaica and Brooklyn and, and London are, are doing with auto-tune and the way they're, they're using it just to meld the human voice with machines. And that, you know, I, I, I was glad to see that there's still innovation happening. And, and I think innovation will continue. What I worry about is there's no coherent cultural mass narrative um, to share and, 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 and to bring people together. And I feel like we're, at least in America, we're about to tear ourselves apart. Indeed. Um, final question. Do you feel you accomplished your goal with Let It Roll? Oh, God, no. I mean, um, there's so much. I, I want to finish the Latin Roll series. I think that's really important. I uh, want to learn more about opera. I want to learn more about the beginnings of the music business. You know, when did they first sell, sell sheet music? When did they uh, start selling tickets to the public for concerts. You know, when did opera become kind of a mass medium? How did music hall evolve in, in England and, and, you know, the other countries? Uh, I've got a book on the, the Polka Revolution of 1848. That, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> that's, you know, that's some deep diving right there. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, but figuring out how these things all connect, uh, uh, it's Polka still a big part of the story. I mean, in the way it pops back up in, in Conuto and Norteño and, and, you know, Texas Latino music, uh, it's just awesome to me. I mean, you know, the, the Germans walk away from the accordions and the, and the two step beat the two, four time. And, and these Mexican kids are like, Hey, what's this, (laughs) you know? (laughs) 
and just grab it and run. I, I mean, that to me is the beauty of music is just the cross pollination and the, the cultural appropriation. I mean, I just think that's bullshit. I think it, it's everybody, every human being's inheritance, you know, and, and anybody that contribute can contribute to it should. Um, I mean, obviously I see the, the downside of, of, and the inequities, um, you know, and it's not fair that it, black artists before Michael Jackson couldn't be the big superstar that, you know, somebody like BB King would never have a chance to be Elvis or the Beatles, you know? Um, and you know, that wasn't fair and that wasn't right. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I feel like Elvis and Beatles gave back a lot and influenced a lot of black artists, you know, and, and, uh, that it's appropriation everywhere. I'm reading a book about barbershop quartets right now. And, and the guy set out to start out and prove that, you know, that barbershop quartets were an African-American tradition and, and that were swiped by white people. And he came out of his research going, wow, no, this was a African-American and Anglo-American tradition. And they were cross pollinating the whole time, ripping each other off right and left. And, and, you know, everything's much more complicated than these simple stories. And I like, picking apart the nuance you know so yeah i never got to talk about that i really would like to have had a chance to talk about minstrelsy um but that's a topic you know nobody wants to talk about that nobody wants to be on the record talking about blackface and yet that's where american music comes from um all of it you know that that was the first time african american music got brought to a world audience even though it was in a twisted distorted mockery way so many black songwriters and performers had careers in minstrelsy in the second half of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century i mean we we wouldn't have burt williams if we didn't have minstrelsy and and you know he's the first great black broadway star and records still pack some power and and, and then, you know, the idea that Al Jolson is remembered and hated for, as a mega racist when he wasn't racist at all. He was just a Jewish immigrant trying to adapt to American traditions. And blackface minstrelsy was like the most all-American thing you could find. And, and also he got a lot of power from wearing that mask. And black performers did that too, like Pigmeat Markham. You know, that's one story to get to tell with R.J. Smith. I mean, poor Pigmeat Markham, you know, was this comedian who came up black guy wearing blackface and and he was sad to his dying day that that he was pressured into no longer performing in blackface he felt like he was better that he, he could play to the back of the room and make you know that that there was there was some artistry to that and and i mean it's not my place to say whether or not it, you know he should have been continuing to perform in blackface but but then finding out that he his cadences from records he made in the 60s directly influenced DJ Hollywood, who directly influences Melly Mel, who directly influences everybody in hip hop. I mean, that's the kind of shit I love digging up and 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 these connections. And, uh, you know, so it would have been um, cool to get to talk about that. I mean, you know, I, I am frustrated that I didn't start doing this earlier when people like Nick Tosh's were alive and, and I could have talked to him, but I'm sure I would have said all kinds of horrible crap in the nineties. that would have gotten me canceled in the two thousands. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, it is what it is. Uh, I feel like we took a good stab at it and, and 
I feel like I've got the outline out there if other people want to pick up the torch and run with it. I mean, still need a history of Broadway music, history of minstrelsy, history of opera, history of symphonic music. Um, as I, I think it all, it all connects, um, you know, much more to do on the history of jazz. I'm still really fascinated. I feel like I did some good work around that 1945, 1940s point where jazz goes from being the dance music, the pop music, and the art music to suddenly just the art music. That It's so fascinating to me that, that, that Louis Jordan and Charlie Parker just take it in two different directions. And Charlie Parker's got all this cultural cachet, and Louis Jordan's basically forgotten because he was funny and he sang cool, simple songs, you know. And I swear, you put on Charlie Parker at a party – and you put on Louis Jordan, I know which party's going to be more fun. <laughs> you know? I loved Charlie Parker, not to take anything away from him. And I think what he did was, you know, what he and Dizzy Gillespie did was very important for black middle-class artists to say, hey, we're artists. This is serious shit. We're doing incredible things musically. We're the most innovative musicians on the planet, which they were. Um, and, and, you know, make this demand for dignity and also – chase the white boys off the stage like if you can't keep up cracker you can't keep up and the white boys who could keep up they got invited back you know i mean it, it um you know learning those stories and learning about the way you know dizzy's alliance with with the latin music and how you know i really think that if there hadn't been the musician strike and we had gotten to hear bebop being born on record um and not had this four-year blackout that shit might have been pop music, you know. I mean, if 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 Dizzy and and you know had had been able to combine the Cuban dance styles with this innovative new solo style, you know, they might have done it in ways that were more palatable to a pop audience. And and maybe that's that wouldn't be great, you know. But um, maybe the way things happen is just the way they had to happen. But um, you know, I love thinking about that shit. You know, why did Bebop not catch on? Because they originally thought it would. It was the big music, big new music in New York. They went to LA. Everybody in LA was excited to hear them. They sell out big clubs. And by the end of the week, nobody's coming back. And it was also a lot of it was because Ed kind of wrote jazz out of the history of rock and roll, which you know, I totally just drives me crazy. And, uh, and I think it's a historical, but it's something that the baby boomers did. They really, they really tried to, to write out the pop history of their parents' generation and disconnect it, you know, tried to, to make rock and roll kind of a year zero event. And anytime you have somebody declaring a year zero where nothing in the past mattered, and this is where history starts, you always got to be suspicious. And that's when you really want to look, look into the history. You've got an incredible library, that's for sure. I mean, hundreds of episodes, and, and they're all informative. So for this last bit, we have not played any songs. I'm sure people have noticed that because for years we always have four song snippets, but not today. This is a different episode for sure. So you have selected one song to take us out. Tell us the song and take us out, Nate. This is a song my kids hate that I'm obsessed with. This is this guy, John McCormick, who was an Irish opera singer. And he also sold a lot of records singing traditional Irish songs. And uh, this song, Molly Brannigan, for whatever reason, 
just hooked me and I've listened to it thousands of times. I'll put it on loop for hours and uh, days straight. And uh, uh, so this is kind of my favorite song, John McCormick's Molly Brannigan. Mom, dear, did you never hear a pretty Molly Brannigan? And throb and she's left me and I'll never be a man again. Not a spot on me hide will the summer sun air tan again. Since Molly's gone and left me here alone for to die. The place where me heart was, you daisy roll a turn up in. Tis as large as all Dublin and from Dublin to the Devil's Glen. If she wished to take another, sure she might have left mine back again and not have gone and left. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. To achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.